So if you have your Bibles with you, if you would please open to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 26, 27, 28, 29. Four verses we'll be reading this morning from Mark chapter 4. And he said, that would be Jesus, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Father, we thank you once again this morning, Lord, that you have revealed yourself in the word that you have given us. So that we might see your glory, we might know how to live a life that is pleasing to you, and we might be ever grateful and thankful that you have spoken to us and told us the truth that your son Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. So help me this morning, Lord, to speak correctly and truthfully about your glorious word that you have delivered to us. Amen. Now this particular parable we have this morning is unique to Mark. It's typically headlined as the parable of the growing seed. Many of us are very familiar with what is usually called the parable of the sower or what might be called the four soils And that parable is in all three synoptic Gospels along with the mustard seed that starts small and grows very large. Here in Mark only, we have this very brief parable which again is about the sowing and growing of seeds. And whereas the parable of the four soils often creates a lot of discussion about each type of soil, and its application to us and others, this four-verse parable seems very straightforward. Seed is planted, farmer goes about his business, it grows, it is harvested. Now, this parable has often given me great comfort since it focuses on God, his work, and his sovereignty. Now, the farmer... He is surely not lounging around after sowing the seed, which a person might interpret from verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day while all this growing is going on. But it clearly focuses on the work of God, not you and I, in the growing after the sowing. And not sure about you, but any time I think about all the responsibilities we have as believers to obey commandments, serve others, glorify God, avoid becoming polluted by the world, looking after orphans and widows, that rather than become overwhelmed, I go back to Paul's direction to us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what we are going to be reminded of today is God's miraculous working in believers by his power and plan, along with how to consider, understand, and know, and especially to deal ourselves with this seed. Of course, we know the basics of this seed, since Jesus tells us in the parable of the four soils, he explains things to his disciples and simply states, the seed is the word of God. Now, we know there is never anything wrong with the seeds that are sown in these parables I just mentioned. It's about the soil. The seed is the word of God, and there is never anything wrong with it. With a big if. That is, if it is properly read, interpreted, taught, and proclaimed... Now, in the world of farming, we have what are called GMOs, which are genetically modified organisms. And these are now used throughout the world, to the horror of many, for much of our basic farm-grown foods we eat. But in the Christian world, when it comes to planting the seed, we are talking about here, we have today in the church, our own GMOs, something like we might call gospel-modified originalism. (laughs) Modified so that it may not grow at all. Now, whether GMOs in our corn supply are a problem, I am no expert, but I can tell you that GMO teaching in the church is clearly a problem because in many cases... It is a seed that is corrupted before you even consider the soil. And if the seed in the church is actually bad GMO seed, then we can even find ourselves thinking of the parable about the weeds, where the bad seed sown brings forth worthless devil-sourced weeds next to the good crop. Now, one of the ways the GMO gospel can do its damage is to cause one to ignore our parable this morning. Our farmer has two things, amongst others. He has patience and he has trust. Trust that the seed which he has been given is good, no need to modify it in any way, and patience, lots of patience. But in the church today, we often see these two lacking. The seed given us, the gospel as it is clearly given in Scripture, including things like judgment, hell, living the crucified life, losing your life to find it, counting the cost, following Christ in the obedience that comes from faith, can be modified. Possibly out of lack of trust in God's power and sovereignty, or just plain pride, to make it sound more pleasing to the ears of sinners... Well, then the sower of the seed might be doomed from the start, since only weeds may be the result. But, let's say it is full of truth. The seed is good, then the one who is planting it may be convinced it should be something like one of those nature videos 
that time lapses the plant growth so it always goes from seed to full grown in 90 seconds. The lack of trust, the lack of patience, and that can lead you right to a sinner's prayer. And thus, one can think the plant must be growing nicely right away, whether the soil is good or not, since a good seed was planted. Thinking the church is sort of like a turbo greenhouse with lots of grow lights. Of course, that goes along with how we moderns live now, with little patience, like this thing. What's wrong with the Wi-Fi? It's not loading. We rarely plant seeds. We go to the Home Depot and get the plant already sprouted and well on its way to being grown up. But that's not what our farmer is doing in our parable. This passage from the first time I read it, as I said, has always brought me great comfort, especially helpful in understanding the absolute sovereignty of God. It completely confirmed what Paul said to the Corinthians. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And this parable today comes after the parable of the four soils. And usually, when a person who's been a believer for quite a while reads that parable, they get past the first and second soil, okay, but then they get a bit of discomfort by the third soil and hope they are truly of the fourth soil because the first and second soils are short-term. Devil quickly takes away the planted seed. No, that's not me. Grows some at first with joy, then withers and I fall away. Not me. Been a Christian for quite a while. But the third soil, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is the one that can and perhaps should concern a Christian examining yourself, your desire for Christ. Are the thorns using up all the nourishment from the soil so there's none left to feed my desire for Jesus? Because we want to be those of the fourth good soil, bearing fruit perhaps even a hundredfold so when we get to today's parable, we see that if the soil is prepared by God, we've got a great hope. God's a miracle worker. The good soil is a miracle. And the growing seed is a miracle. They are both God's miracles. So Mark here records Jesus. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He knows what kind of seed he's got, what type of plant will grow from it if the soil is good and he plants with confidence. There's no GMO for this farmer. We'll know a tree by its fruit and we'll know what kind of tree is coming if we plant the right seed in the good soil. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Sounds like maybe a lazy farmer. But no, he has those two ingredients of trust and patience. If God's prepared that good soil, 
I planted the seed so God's going to make it grow. Maybe the farmer has got some Apollos in him. Like Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Many times I've driven up the Central Valley in California and seen endless acres of planted farmland growing being watered by those giant sprinklers. And I can fool myself and think, these farmers, they just plant and then they rest a lot, waiting to harvest. An idea seems pretty appealing, usually. But that is wrong, of course. Even when Paul is charging Timothy to teach others, calling Timothy to be a suffering soldier for the teaching of the gospel, he compares his work to the trained athlete and the hard-working farmer. So our farmer today isn't lazy. He's going about his daily business, night and day, waiting patiently for the Lord to bring rain or maybe irrigating it. And that lets us know he's ultimately trusting in the seed to grow, not by his effort, but the planting and the watering is about all he can do. These important words in here, the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. He doesn't really know how it happens because he's not really in charge here. It just does. And do we know how it happens? That someone becomes a believer? Well, yes, we plant the seed. If you look around the whole world, we notice most plants are not there because someone planted a seed. They reproduce on their own. It's not because someone planted them. God has created most to reproduce on their own with their own seeds within them. But that is not the way God presents his seed, his gospel, to the world. The farmer plants, the farmer sleeps and works and watches, the farmer harvests. Lots about the farmer. But he really doesn't do much compared to what God does. Not trying to discount him, but the ready seed is given to him ready to plant. The oxygen is in the air. The sun is ready to shine on it. There's water coming to moisten it. God is taking care of all these things. Everything's ready for the seed, but got to plant it. There is a person, a farmer doing the planting work. The fisherman casts his net to catch the fish. They don't jump into the boat. And if we aren't planting the GMO seed... If rather instead we're planting, scattering the true gospel, we can have confidence that God will make it grow and bear fruit only where he makes it grow. So night and day, whether we sleep or get up, he's in charge of the growth and fruit as we go about our lives. Jesus had the same way of life. Right after our passage here, along with the mustard seed parable, Jesus is sleeping in the boat during a raging storm. He's so sound asleep that they have to wake him up to calm the storm. Jesus is a man with full confidence in the Father, being with him as he does everything the Father tells him, what he is there for. It must be planted. It must purposely be sown into the field to ears and eyes of other people. A man should scatter seed on the ground. This offensive gospel must purposely be taught, including the offense of the cross, 
in spite of all resistance, in a way that makes us wise as serpents, but innocent as doves? Like Paul, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. But he always makes it clear that salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone, not by works, not by law-keeping. Otherwise, he says, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Because the cross does not need to be propped up and helped out, but be proclaimed in all its magnificent truth. The seed is planted in the good soil that God has prepared. Somehow it's watered. We or someone else waters it. To that end, of course, many of us can testify of God himself doing the watering by the circumstances of life he brings. Many times they are full of difficulty. We grasp at the mirage of life that we think idols bring, and they one after another, they vanish, they disappoint, they bring ruin or misery, loneliness, emptiness, and end up just magnifying the empty hole in a person's soul waiting for real life that is meant to be filled only by God himself through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Then for those who are called by God's mercy, things happen. Peter tells us what? You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Luke tells us, Paul presents Christ in salvation, and then when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul himself tells us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Jesus tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So those things happen when someone becomes a believer. But really, we are like the farmer. We know a little, not a lot. Like Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That miraculous change in the heart, the heart that believes, how does that happen? Really? Not sure. I'm like the farmer. He knows not how. A hard heart that hates God and hides from God and ignores God? That heart then loves God more than life itself? Miracle, yes. Like the Israelites in the rebellion that we are warned about. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. But we all did. Like the Israelites, before that miracle, they made their hearts diamond hard 
lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit. We may say, I changed my mind, or I had a change of heart. We may claim credit, but there is no credit due anyone but Christ Himself for this kind of change. And that is why the way this farmer thinks and acts is so comforting. He knows not how the earth produces by itself First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When he says, by itself, it does those things, that word is automate, just like automatic. Charles Spurgeon, got to have a quote by Charles Spurgeon at some point. He tries to give a description of how the Holy Spirit does its work in a new believer as best he can using words like he enters into us. We hear not his voice, see not his light, feel not his touch, but it's a resurrection, a quickening from the dead. But then he ends with, all these words are only covers to our utter ignorance of the mode of his work with which it is not in our power to meddle. We do not know how he performs his miracles of love. We cannot save. So the farmer's patience is rewarded in the end. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. It comes in stages, starts out small. The seed first produces roots before anything else. It goes for the nourishing soil first, and only then a healthy plant grows upward, no root, no growth, when it's ripe, time for the harvest. And what kind of harvesting is this? Not end times, because it is the farmer who puts in the sickle. This is the kind of harvest Jesus was speaking of when he was at the well with the Samaritan woman, when he was speaking of himself and salvation. He told his disciples when they returned, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. And isn't it comforting when Jesus finishes with one sows and another reaps? I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The sowing, watering, and reaping can and will often actually be different farmers, different fishermen, if you will. And knowing that gives even greater comfort to the farmer waiting night and day until the seed sprouts. Trusting Paul's statement to the Philippians that allows a farmer to rest in the I do not know how. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And what are the ways that the true gospel, the seed goes out? 
Who are these farmers that scatter and wait patiently? Well, let me tell you, it's definitely not just the man on Sunday in the pulpit. For example, Paul is so focused on the gospel being preached that he rejoices over the trouble he's having in prison. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then he goes on to say that there are some problem preachers, fame and trouble-seeking preachers, who are preaching the gospel so that somehow his miserable prison life is even more miserable. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, he says, to afflict me in my imprisonment. But wait, he's actually rejoicing in that because his main hope is that the gospel will be preached, and he writes, whether in pretense or in truth. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. They think they're hurting him with their preaching. And he's saying, nope, not at all. Go for it, you troublemakers. Christ is being preached. How about this too? If we're filled with the Spirit, Paul says we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And we write them. The right songs have a powerful gospel message. So, I go to my dad's church. Sorry, Dad, if you're listening. And I hear a tepid sermon about how we can all get along and do good stuff, nothing about the gospel, Christ, sin, judgment, and it can be depressing. But then, they pull out the hymnal, and I say, ha-ha, now they cannot escape. Here it comes into their ears. I was once far away from the Savior, just as vile as a sinner could be, and I wondered if Christ the Redeemer could save a poor sinner like me. And of course at Christmas, mixed right in there with here comes Santa Claus, long lay the world in sin and error, pining till he appeared and the soul found its worth. Or how about Paul? He hits home runs, like Acts 13 in Antioch. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And Paul proclaims the word boldly to Jews and Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But then, in Philippi, where there aren't many Jews or synagogues, things are a lot more simple. Paul is with just a small group of women. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, 
who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And that day, just one comes to believe. Now, now what of the end of our parable? When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The parable ends there with the harvest, the ripe grain, the true believer. And now what? Be glad in the harvest and rejoice with them. What do you imagine rejoicing is like in heaven? If you're a believer, surely you've thought of how jump up and down joyful it must be. At the marriage supper, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. But Jesus tells us what it's like up there right now. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And we must make sure we keep rejoicing with these new believers so they remain believers. How do we do that? Well, Jesus tells us in the wheat and weed parable about those who continue in the faith At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Bring them into my barn, meaning final redemption with Christ, but in the meantime, we want to make sure they make it to that barn. This here, this is not a barn, it's just a cafeteria, but it's a refuge a refuge from the alluring world, including the ever-present enemy, the devil, of a redeemed person who now has a newborn love for Christ. Not to push the analogy too far, but when Jesus says, the harvest has come, it's not like the seed it came from. Seeds go in pouches. The harvest goes in a barn so it doesn't rot. How often do we worry when someone moves away that they find a good church? Because without it, their faith can be shipwrecked. They may even wander as the other 99 stay with the shepherd. Even though Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Still, we are warned in Hebrews... Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. All this parable this morning explains we're only partway there. The end of the parable, the harvest, that's just the beginning of the work we have. The church, the Jesus-focused, gospel-preaching, community-loving Sacrificial giving, praying, singing, God-glorifying church is critical to the harvest. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Yes, Paul does say, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. But don't forget, God also gave the exhorters, 
the givers, the merciful, the administrators, the miracle workers, and the chair-setter uppers, the hospitable open-up-their-homers, the help-and-hopers, the musicians, the singers, and of course the coffee-makers. So Paul concludes, but as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So we need to keep on keeping on. We must not grow weary in doing good. We must pray and not give up. We must be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Do we see why this is critical? A train that keeps keeping on so people can jump on what is already en route to the goal. Like Paul says, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You've probably never heard of Philo Farnsworth. But many of you may be very happy he lived because Philo invented the television. In the late 1800s, Mike Kelly was a very famous baseball player. Two times national batting champ, Hall of Famer, became a famous actor, the subject of the first recorded pop song, Subject after he died of a major motion picture. The first sports autobiographer. He was a household name in America, but he's pretty much forgotten. People come and go, once known by many, some exceedingly famous in their time, but as time goes by, they are forgotten. A few who have done incredible feats live in infamy for centuries. Caesar. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Aristotle, and of course Shakespeare. But most people who do ordinary things are completely forgotten by all. But there is at least one important exception of an ordinary person doing simple things. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. This is Mary, the sister of Martha. The disciples thought it was a waste, but then, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them any time you want but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This woman's love for Jesus expressed with a jar of perfume will be told forever in memory of her as long as the world endures. Because Jesus says wherever this gospel is preached, what she has done will be told in memory of her 
And since the gospel, Jesus says, must be preached to all nations before he comes, she will be known until then. Known wherever this gospel is preached. The whole gospel is dying for sin, thus making atonement for that sin by his death, satisfying his justice, fulfilling the law, destroying death being buried dead in the grave and rising again for our justification. The full gospel, which includes this memorial to Mary and him and her anointing him for that burial. Jesus even says it in that special way. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, it will be told in memory of her I think this is telling us something that Jesus sees this gospel and its proclamation as pretty darn important so that even the smallest act toward that end, which is really a worship of Jesus and expressing his love to others, is actually monumental. So much so that just a simple act of pouring perfume by a simple woman creates a world history enduring memorial to this woman. But if that's true, how much more what Christ has done and suffered should be told as a memorial to him. When I see the magazines at the checkout, I see them pretty much wasting their life. And I think of Mary, an obscure woman who did not waste hers. She didn't do much. But what she did do, Jesus says, will be remembered by him and us forever. There is good seed that results in good trees and bears good fruit. There are bad seeds that grow into weeds that are burned in the fire. And these small good seeds grow into very large fruitful trees, but the farmer does not know how. And yet, Paul tells us, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes It is the power of God for salvation. God's power. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. There is no greater power than his power. You know, they put up the Hubble telescope to examine the farthest ends of the universe. It can see well over 300 times as far as your naked eye. But all it does is just make man want to see further because it keeps showing the enormity and perfection and endlessness of the universe. So to tackle that problem, a new telescope is going up at the end of this year that is twice as big and has seven times more power so it can look many, many times further into the farthest universe try as man will, I can tell you they will never find the end of the infinite universe. Meanwhile, the littlest thing in the world, the atom? No. It's been reduced to the quark, but those who study it realize there are yet smaller things. Now there's string theory. Maybe that will explain the even smaller universe of the subatomic But I can tell you there too, they will never get to the end of it because that is infinite as well.
Sorry I won't be around to be proven wrong, but I doubt it. And the word of God in front of me right here, it's infinite as well. If I read and studied it, even as long as Noah lived, I would never fully grasp and understand all that is in here to be known about our infinite God. But now listen, I am not a scientist. So really, I know very little about all that creation stuff. But even without a telescope or a microscope, I can understand enough to know the creation is infinite and perfectly designed and in it that God's power is beyond our comprehension. And I stand in awe of it. And listen, I am no trained theologian. I know a small fraction of what Joe and Sergio know. But I know enough to know that infinite, perfectly designed power of God is this word right here as well. That the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us are being saved. It is the power of God. I know enough to know that it says the seed that can be planted, the gospel, the good news, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I know this. Jesus loves me. That I know because this Bible tells me. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. My sins, your sins, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Like Paul, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For believers, nothing here or there or anywhere can separate you or me from his redeeming love nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I was imprisoned and full of sin like a man drowning in the ocean, stained inside and outside and lost and on the way to hell, Jesus reached down and he seized me and he rescued me and he saved me. Has he done that for you? My friend, has he saved you? So I love this passage because that seed, the gospel, is God's ultimate display of his power. Can we imagine adjusting God's creation because we lack trust in its power? We're given a brand new 500 horsepower Ferrari every day of the week that never needs a tune-up. So why would we use a 62 Buick to get there? It's the power of God displayed throughout the whole creation. It's beyond our understanding. But the seed, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. What greater free gift of God that of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord instead of the wages for sin which is our death and eternal judgment. The revelation of God's grace is glory to redeem guilty sinners to display the glory of the Son. What greater way to know you are loved by God than that He has chosen you 
Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What greater mercy than that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's gone to prepare a place for you, and he's coming back to get you, you who believe. So I do love this farmer, and I identify with him. He plants the seed, trusting the good soil to do its good work in due time as it is watered, goes about his business, watches it grow, and he knows not how. That is so humbling. It takes the gas right of any plans we have to just drag new converts into the kingdom. Makes you say, well, you know what? I guess I have to rely upon that infinitely powerful God who creates, rules, and runs the earth and universe every single day. But of course, the farmer... He's very busy night and day, as it says, doing his work, running the farm. A lot of work to be ready when the seed grows and ripens into real grain. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you that you have not left us as left us as orphans. Your creation that has rebelled against you, stiff-armed you, said no thank you to you, ignored you, denied you, and those who you have showered your love upon have died to sin so that they may live for you. What a glorious exchange. Thank you that you have taken our sin from us on that cross that day in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And then, as you call each one of us, you have turned around and given us your righteousness that we don't deserve. What a glorious Savior. We thank you that you have risen again. That you are interceding for us. That you look down and you see us as your children. And you guide us along and you give us your spirit. And nothing can separate us from your love. So help us to keep walking that narrow path and living lives that are pleasing to you. 
And may your gospel go out to the ends of the earth the only way that we may be saved. Let it be proclaimed throughout the earth. And then you will come again to take your children to live with you.